Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Hello and welcome into this edition of the Golf Channel Podcast with Rex and Lav. Before we get into Kyle Morikawa's drought-busting victory in Japan, Rex, you're in Miami, not just for Joe Stonecrab, but also for the Live Team Championship. We'll first get into some of your takeaways on Live and where Live goes 2024 and beyond. But what were the questions you wanted answered? Did you get answered? And what was the general sense of a golf center reporter being on site at a live event. Uh, I just told you this before we came up. Uh, normally I don't care. Like it, there was a couple of people who went on X formerly of Twitter and pointed out that I, that there was a golf channel person uh, at a live event. And I didn't mind. It's not like I was trying to hide it. We talked about it on the podcast last week. I have a dateline on all my stories. Like it's not like it was a big secret, but I will give credit to one guy. I can't even remember what his handle was where he, he took a picture of me walking down the fairway. I was following the Phil Mickelson match on Friday. And he noted correctly that I had a World Golf Championship notebook in my back pocket. I was kind of like, okay, now you guys are just, now it's in truth. Um, it, it was interesting to me. I, the answer, you're, I know I didn't get the answers to the questions I wanted. And it was kind of twofold. Well, don't, don't, don't bother submitting the expense report. Uh, yeah, no kidding. Uh, I, I guess I kind of, I made the rounds and I'm going to write it today. It's probably going to run tomorrow. Uh, on NBCSports.com backslash golf. But I think it, what I wanted to know is from a live player perspective, on December 31st, when this agreement, let's assume it happens on December 31st. I don't believe it will. But let's say something does happen on December 31st in the framework agreement to definitive between the PGA Tour and the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia. In a perfect world, what would a live player want that to look like? And that's kind of what I made the rounds out. Some players that I talked to actually had pretty decent answers. Like you can tell Bubba Watson had spent some time thinking about this. You could really tell Bryson DeChambeau had spent some time thinking, I miss him. I do. So I'm do I put it out. There. Like there's actually some players on, on live that I miss covering on the PJ tour, not necessarily personality wise. There's, there's, you know, there's a couple on live that I miss personality wise, but like these guys by and large are, are content Kings. Bryson oh, yeah. was the, was a, a gift from the content Gods. Bubba Watson, love him or loathe him, was a gift from the content gods. Brooks Kepka, love him or loathe him, gift from the content gods. Patrick, Patrick Reed, like you can go on and on. I miss those players, not necessarily for their skills, for their personality, but like in the content business, these, these guys are home runs, all of it. Oh, yeah. No, I miss I miss all of them. You're right. Speaking of Brooks, he gave me the stiff arm uh, when I went, went to go ask him some of these questions. And the reason it was is he I'm doesn't chill. like... Uh, not chill at all. He doesn't like some of the things that were portrayed in a recent book about him. We can get into that later. But my takeaway was, well, it was kind of twofold. One, I've come to understand that everyone looks at this particular situation, 
whatever the agreement's going to be through their very specific lens. And whether if that's a PGA Tour player or an official on the PGA Tour or you and I or a live player, whatever the case may be, I'm amazed that there is no middle ground on this. That, and I, I, I'm less convinced now than I was a week ago when we had this conversation that there's ever going to be an agreement because my biggest takeaway, and look, there was like Bubba had some good ideas. Bryson had some good ideas about maybe how the two sides could come together and they had some theories about it, but left sort of unsaid, but just below the surface sort of bubbling up was the idea that none of the players want there to be a framework agreement. I mean, a definitive agreement. And I could probably say the same thing about players on the PGA tour side for any number of reasons. It actually got me thinking on the long drive home from Miami, like who actually does want this to work out? I, I know that there's some really hardworking PGA Tour employees led by Tyler Dennis and then probably some folks on the PIF side who want it to happen because they're negotiating. They're trying. They're, they're investing you know, big parts of their life into this. But outside of those principles, I just don't see how any, any, of, the, any of the different competing interests involved want anything to do with this. If it was up to the PGA Tour players, if it was up to Rory McIlroy, my guess is he just assumed that there not be an agreement. If it was up to, and I don't even want to call anybody out, player, if it was up to Phil Mickelson, trust me, he would much rather there not be any type of agreement. And I think most players fall in that category. It is interesting. I mean, we're, we're slightly more than two months away from the December 31st deadline to get the, the uh, framework agreement across the finish line. Of course, that can be extended. I mean... There's basically three scenarios, right? Like, I think it's, it's pretty crystal clear at this point. You either consummate the deal as is before December 31st. That oh, what does that seem... mean? Well, I, you're not even – like, you have to go beyond as is because there is nothing as is. There's a piece of paper that said we want to talk. That's the extent of as is. Well, they're supposed to be the, the gateway for, for live players. You're supposed to mm-hmm. have the PGA Tour help. Like, you, you know what I mean? So, essentially, just consummating – just consummating any sort of deal before December 31st. That seems unlikely. Second scenario is Piff agrees to alter the deal. And in addition to allowing like an influx of private equity money, a scenario that probably seems more favorable to U.S. lawmakers who are already scrutinizing uh, this potential partnership as is. So that's the second one. It would kind of dilute the Saudi influence. And the third one, the one that, perhaps while you were there in Miami, it seems like the most likely at this point is that the agreement just falls apart, that, that the tour, you know, secures outside investors. Uh, it puts up the one to $2 billion that PIF was going to invest uh, as any, anyway. And the two tours basically just continue on their parallel tracks. The PJ tour doing what it's supposed to do in 2024 and beyond anyway. And PIF, the financial backer of live golf uh, continues in perpetuity that way i guess my question rex of those three scenarios who who has the most to lose in that scenario is it is it the tour right like if if the most likely scenario at this point is that the deal falls apart and does not happen is is that a is that a win-win for the tour is that a losing proposition for the tour does piff and live golf is that a big swing and a miss like what's your what's your sense uh, well, this is a simplistic answer. First and foremost, I think the fans are the ones that lose right off the top because we had this conversation last week. We'll probably continue to have this conversation last week. If you don't have the best players in the world competing against each other on a regular basis, that's bad for the fans. It's bad for the product. And this fractured product has denied everyone of that. Now, you can sit here and we can split hairs about how many top players are, are actually on Live Golf versus the PGA Tour. 
But I think we can all agree that, look, there is an element on Live Golf that are still the best players in the world. And that when you have an event this week or last week in Japan, for an example, and the best players aren't there, I can say that the fans get hurt on that. Probably to, to answer your question directly, it's going to be the PGA Tour. If nothing comes from this, if, as we both speculated, the idea this was 3D chess and the, the only reason they even went down this road is to make the lawsuit go away, which I think is a realistic thought because both sides were highly motivated to make that thing go away for a lot of different reasons. And if the end game is going to be make the lawsuit go away, and then on December 31st, essentially, we get to go our separate ways, and we go product, we go head-to-head and see which product is better. I think in the long term, the tour is probably going to get hurt on that. One, I don't know how private equity works. The only reason this is a good deal right now, based on everything that transpired leading up to June 6th, is because private equity wants an immediate return on investment. They're not giving this money away just because they want to get involved in golf. They want a return on investment. Whereas the PIF might say they want a return on investment, but I think they're much more at ease with the idea that, okay, $2 billion today, and then maybe 10 or 20 years from now, we get some of that back. The tour is never going to find a sweetheart deal that sweet anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world of finance. So, and I can tell you, that if it does fall apart, if December 31st comes and goes and there is no agreement and they decide to go the other way, the, the word around live is that they're going to double down, that they're going to continue to do what they were doing before, which is go after top players. Phil Mickelson alluded to this last week, that even though it's supposed to be kind of a truce and they're supposed to not be recruiting other players, according to Phil, according to a lot of the other players I talked to at live, that there's a lot of interest on the PGA tour side. I was called by an agent last week, specifically asking like, about specific players. How much do you think they would pay for this guy or that guy? And if the tour gets into that long-term battle again, where they were six months ago, I think Jay Monahan has admitted to it. Jimmy Dunn has admitted to it. We all kind of know it's a battle you can't win long-term. If we remember this summer on Capitol Hill, it was either Jimmy Dunn or Ron Price that live in the PIF has the potential to just bleed the PGA Tour dry and just poach player after player after player and eventually in five or 10 years, uh, the live golf is where all the top players go. I, I'm not so sure that the PGA tour would actually lose in this scenario, Rex. I remember you jumping all over me on the podcast sometime this summer, right around the time the tiger joined uh, the PGA tour policy board. To me, that seemed like a hint that he was getting on board with the sole purpose of trying to get outside investors, either again, to help, dilute some of the Saudi influence or just to eliminate it altogether. He's made no secret his disdain uh, for, for the PIF and live golf in particular. I think with some financial backing from, from private equity money, like the tour could be in good shape. You have the signature events that bring together uh, the best players on the PGA tour uh, in their biggest markets uh, on their best golf courses, at least for now, the, the top players all seem to be, rowing in the same direction. There doesn't seem to be uh, the same sort of dissension or confusion about like the direction of what the PJ tour is. This TJL deal, I think it's still a little bit of an unknown of what it's actually going to look like in a couple months time, uh, but that could help line some players pockets as well. If, if you're live though, it, I certainly see the point of like angering like Yasser Al-Ramayan and his, his top lieutenants and having them double down. But like, if if this deal falls apart, Liv is still fighting the exact same battles. 
They're still fighting for attention. They're still fighting for sponsorship. They're still fighting for world ranking points. They're still fighting for uh, another mass exodus of the PJ Tour's best players. All of those, uh, to me, are more unknowns at that point and in, in just, in just riddled with question marks. But I think the PJ Tour could actually be in a pretty strong position uh, with an influx of, of private equity money. No, I think the conversation we probably had before June about this was right now, yes, the tour has the better product. They have the upper hand. They have the high ground, however it is you want to put it. And you're right. It is a long uphill battle for Live Golf, but they had the financial resources to do it. I don't know when or if the Live Golf model would ever catch up to and maybe surpass the PGA Tour model. But I think we both agree to the idea that if they're really in it for the long haul, and I'm talking about the public investment fund, and if they're willing to commit, I don't know, a decade to let's just see what we can make of this. Let's see if we can pick off every top player one a year. And we, if you do that for a decade, at some point you get to the end of that, and there's a really good chance that the tour's not on the winning side of that. I think that's what Jay Monahan refers to as an irrational threat. Right now, you're absolutely right. The PGA Tour has a superior product. It's a superior TV product. I think when you look and, – and look, I really wanted to walk around property last week at Doral. Because I really wanted to get a full sense of, you know, what are these things like? And like, I've been asked a couple times, like, how would you compare the crowds? And I don't know, man, like somewhere between Bay Hill and Scottsdale. Like it's not, it wasn't like I wasn't overwhelmed with it. It's pretty hard. Well, no, maybe. And that's maybe a little on the high side because I I simply wasn't overwhelmed by it. And maybe it was, I was not there on Sunday to be fair. Maybe it was much better on Sunday. Miami is sort of a weird late arriving crowd, kind of like we ran into in Los Angeles this year. And it was the TV product. I had one player, a live player, come up to me in the bar Friday night. And he was kind of livid about the TV product. And I've, I've got friends, you've got friends that work on that side, that are part of the production team, part of the talent team. And the only argument I made is it's brand new, dude. You kind of have to give it some time. I don't know what it becomes, and I don't know what the thought process is. But if you go back to the idea that the PIF is invested in this for the long term, that they have no interest in washing their hands of it and walking away. I, I think it's impossible not to envision a future, whenever that moment is in the future, that it wouldn't go Liv's way. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. You already know you're going to eat some of those McDonald's golden fries on the drive home. So, you may as well add an extra order just for that. <laughs> I, but, but to get to the long term, you have to have you have to have the short you have to have a successful short term. Like it it can't it can't continue like it has for the next two to five years. Like it's a it's a juiceless product. There's no interest. Bubba's team might have 10 to 20 investors, as he said in his press conference this week, but no one, 
no sound investor is going to sign up before any sort of deal is oh, finalized. If if it mm-hmm. if it does, now, yeah, I I totally agree. Like if there is a deal, if they agree, they sort of go their separate ways. Uh, maybe maybe one does, and then I think it's easy to see how uh, other other companies would sign up with DJ's team or Phil's team, whatever the case may be. That's that's one separate issue. But like the world ranking thing is is not going away. Like I think there's only five players on Live who are exempt in the major championships in 2024. Everyone else, including Taylor Gooch, who just walked away with 35 plus million dollars, had the best year of his career, is 30th. And the data golf rankings is not exempt for a single major championship in 2024. Will that change? Will some of the major championships alter their criteria? It's certainly possible. I'm of the belief that they, that they probably should. The top two or three players on live, according to the season points list, or any arbitrary cutoff that they have prior to a major championship should probably be exempt. No different than it is for the Sunshine Tour, the Asian Tour, the uh, uh, Japan Tour, whatever the case may be. But the, the fact of the matter is, if you're on live right now, you, ha- you either have to qualify uh, through one of the 36 hole qualifiers or you're just not going to be exempt from the major championships. That's a huge hurdle, which then parlays into the star power or the lack thereof on live. There's going to be four players uh, with, with a turnover. You could have uh, maybe six, seven, or eight other openings available. But like, where, where are these players going to come from? You have, I think, probably plenty of disgruntled players on the PJ Tour, who either don't like the way that the Live deal, the PIF deal went down on June 6th, or they don't like the fact that there's now this cutoff for the top 50 of the signature events. Could you see some players 51 through 75 who want to go jump over to Live? Maybe, but like they keep That's promising, but like they keep promising these big name players. It's the, it's the exact same rhetoric they had last year. They did deliver it last year, and it's hard to imagine any scenario in which they would nab a big name player this year. I think the world ranking conversation that that ship is sail, at least in most people's minds on that side, simply because, and I think we had this conversation last week where, well, why don't you just, why don't you just give them what they want? The world ranking I'm talking about. Why don't you just go to 72 holes and why don't you just do a Monday qualifier, whatever well, the case may be. Just, just add, just yeah. add two teams. I think, I, I think adding two teams creates enough promotion and relegation. I think adding two teams is actually part of the scenario that the two sides would come together. This goes back to some of the ideas. And again, I'm going to write about it today about if you can expand and they can expand. Uh, and we had a chance to, to meet with Greg Norman, the CEO, and he talked about they can expand up to 15 teams. That would be three additional teams. And I think the idea would be if there, this framework agreement becomes definitive, that's maybe how the two sides can come together, that the PGA Tour gets three teams in full equity and all three teams and they can they can fill those three teams however they want, and then it's a matter of sitting down and working out the schedules. Uh, to your point, I, I don't think they're going to be focused on the world ranking, and the it could, because it is an issue, I don't think it is the issue. I think going forward, it's going to be how they decide to allocate their resources. If they want to go after, for example, a Hideki Matsuyama, it's, he is going to be a, a massive ticket item. Like they, we've already kind of heard the rumors about this, and it's someone that they have really focused on. Someone they put a pin in and decided that's someone we want to go after for obvious reasons. You're not getting a, a top player. You're getting an entire region of the world that sort of kind of to take an event to. Like imagine taking an event to Tokyo if you sign Hideki and he has his own team. So it all makes sense. But from there, it's a matter, and we've had these discussions before, like how do you want to pick a part? Do you want to try to pick a top player every year? 
or wouldn't it be better if you focused on whoever the next, I don't know, uh, Ludwig Uber is or Gordon Sargent or whoever the case may be. But let's pick off one or two of the top college players every year for the next decade. And you're simply going to starve the tour of talent. Eventually, though, all those top players are going to be in their mid 40s. And you're going to be looking back trying to figure out how did we become so old when there was a point right now when every top player feels like he's 25 and below. But what's the selling point for Money. a top player Money. to go to? But that, that, is not pro- that has not proven to be an intense motivator for, I would really? say, a certain caliber of star player on the PGA Tour who's not as much motivated by money as they are their place in the game and history and competing for the biggest titles. If you're a Gordon Sargent uh, or a Michael Thorne-Bjornsson, uh, one of the stud players uh, on Stanford who at least right now, if, it, if the season ended right now, he would be uh, ticketed for a PGA Tour card for a season and a half. I, I'm not sure that $50, 75000000 million would entice them all that much because you're essentially making the same decision that Eugenio Shikara and David Pooge did. These players are immensely talented. They're both under 25. They would appear to have a lot of competitive runway ahead of them. And yet their only way to get into major championships moving forward is to try and get through the three stages of qualifying for the U S open or the open championship masters, not going to happen uh, the PJ championship, unless they somehow mop up in other events that award, world ranking points and get inside the top 100 uh, that's not going to happen as well so uh, like the the carrot that they're dangling it, it has to be more than just money which is why i think the world ranking decision was so huge like they're not going to be getting they're not going to be allocated a ton of points anyway right like it's not like you win a live event and all of a sudden you jump from 75 to 25 like that's not the scenario that you're going to have but the fact that 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 runway is blocked uh, to me, I think was a, was a huge setback uh, for Live Golf and trying to entice players who are both superstars currently on the PGA Tour and I think the, the future stars of tomorrow. Uh, no doubt. And I think internally, they, if you talk to officials with Live Golf, if you talk to, to, to players, they, they kind of knew it was coming because they know that from the other side. I think this is what Phil Mickelson is sort of alluding to when he talks about this is move six out of 21 in the chess match between 36. Okay, so whatever the case may be, I think that's what he's alluding to, the idea that this was probably the PGA Tour's biggest chip, and this was the card that they could always play. And I I think you're right. Certainly in the short term, you're not going to have players that do it, at least players of that level, of that caliber, who are going to do it only for money. But I think if you keep chipping away, again, this is the total long game, and this is kind of assuming – that the PIF wants to be in it for the long game. And this is assuming that the well doesn't dry up and you can continue to do this. I think eventually there does become a time and it's a combination of factors. One, the PIF is a bottomless bucket of monopoly money. We've already addressed that. And the other side is if you take Jimmy Dunn at his word, if you take Jay Monahan at his word, they don't have the resources to continue to compete with that. And that's in the short term. That's I'm not even talking about over the course of a decade. You're having to come up with here's the example that one tournament director told me that they want eight million dollars more for a signature event purse above and beyond what they're already paying. And this tournament director's take was I already get that feel. So tell me what my eight million dollars is giving me above and beyond what I was already getting. That's a problem. And the PGA Tour is going to have to address this. You're absolutely right. In the short term, I would imagine every young hot player coming out of college 
is going to see dollar signs and they're going to realize that they're going those words from Rory and John Rahm to a certain degree are going to resonate that you play for majors you pe- you play for titles you play for legacy I don't know how long that lasts though I'm not sure that that Live Golf and, and Piff are a endless pit of money obviously they have uh, resources that the PJ Tour do not but they also did tighten the purse strings in year two that's a big reason why they weren't able to nab as many hot players like these are very very shrewd businessmen they're not necessarily lighting money on fire i am just curious i think as everyone else is to see how long the leash will be if there is a deal to be had before december 31st if it gets extended whatever the outcome will be make sure you go to nbcsports.com slash golf for all the latest news on that front rex how about one of the stories i did want to touch on uh i think it was one of your best stories that you worked on this entire year it was about matthew wolf uh, I would argue Brooks Kepka is the most high-profile player uh, on Live Golf. Uh, won a major championship, nearly won a second one at the Masters, the 54-hole leader at Augusta National, and yet he's going to have some significant turnover on his team, losing both his brother Chase Kepka, who was one of the four worst players on Live, and thus was relegated basically to no man's land competitively. Uh, and Matthew Wolf, they seem at odds with each other. That has been both private and public and publicly playing out in. Interviews. I mean, Matthew Wolf, I covered him in college. Uh, I wrote a pretty glowing profile, uh, did a pretty glowing TV piece as well. Huge expectations for him. But it seems like he's just a little bit lost. Uh, he's a player who has a, a lot of fan attention uh, because of his youth, uh, his good looks, uh, and his immense power off the tee. What did you find out in regards to Matt Wolf and kind of what his future is and the future Brooks kept his team? I think you and I discussed this last week where Brooks and this started in July when Brooks essentially said that, you know, that they're playing with three men and that he'd given up on the golf course. He's referring to Matthew Wolf. And at first I kind of thought it was just Brooks being Brooks. I mean, here's a big alpha that wants to prove to the world that he's a big alpha. And in this particular case, he kind of, he, he kind of piled on last week before the team championship. And my thought was, man, it feels like he's just punching down at this point. Like, okay, clearly there's a personality conflict. Clearly he doesn't like the way Matthew Wolf does his business. Like they're both in the same business, but they clearly do it different ways. And Matt has been very open about, you know, these mental struggles. And I thought in the age of athlete enlightenment, when it comes to mental, mental health issues that most people, even fellow competitors would have a large degree of empathy for Matt in this situation, that they would all be like, nah, come on, man. Like, don't be the bully. Don't, don't be, don't be that guy talking to Brooks. That wasn't the case at all. I was shocked when I started talking with players uh, about the idea of, do you feel like Brooks has stepped over the lines? And I think probably Harold Varner gave me the best quote for the story. And it was like, look, I wouldn't have done it that way, but it's okay in every other sport for athletes to do it. That's kind of the team golf concept that you have Jamar chase making snarky comments about his quarterback, Joe Burrow, and they are best friends. They went to college together. And he goes, so if you have that situation, then why in the world wouldn't you think you, you would have the same personality conflicts on a team of four professional golfers who, and I'm taken by this idea that you're taking someone, Brooks Kepka being the best example I could ever come up with this, who has been nothing but a, a singular focus. Like I need to be as selfish as humanly possible to do the incredible things I do on the golf course and in the major championships. And now you've plopped him into a role where not only does he have to be that singular selfish person, but suddenly now all of a sudden he's got to worry about three other bodies and he has a GM and he has an entire franchise 
that's around him. He's almost a CEO at this point. Like whatever becomes of this, that's essentially what we're asking him to do. And it is interesting. Like other captains that I talked to were like Matt Bubba being the primary example was like, look, man, I've gone through my issues. I, I feel like Matt just needs a hug. Like he just needs to hear things differently than what Brooks is saying. And he goes, but he was really quick to say Brooks has tried everything he can. Like there's nothing that Brooks has done that I think was out of bounds for his fellow competitors. And I found that fascinating. I, I've said it on a podcast a couple of times. Like one of the main appealing aspects to me of live golf is all the stuff on the periphery and having like different managerial styles, head coaches, whatever owners, whatever kind of position you kind of related to in other sports. Like Brooks is basically the Bill Belichick, right? Of like his team. He's it's, it's, it's no nonsense. It's discipline. There's a certain uh, code of conduct that you expect. Whereas Bubba would have. Thank you very much for my 300th victory. It's very exciting. As you can tell, I can't, I'm over the moon over my 300th victory. Versus like Bryson DeChambeau, who's, who's team won the team title as well. It's, it's more of like a Mike McDaniels, Andy Reid, like all, we're all welcome here. Uh, what sort of uh, weird things do you want to get a, get into and, and draw and put on the drawing board for this next week's uh, tournament? Like, I, I, I love that. I don't, I don't think the team aspect works for everyone, though, I think like Bryson has actually been rejuvenated by mm-hmm. having teammates. He was very much a lone wolf on the PGA Tour, looked at sort of as an outcast, uh, never was able to make uh, inroads as any sort of leader uh, on the pack or the policy board and, and be a difference maker uh, that way. And you look at the way that Bryson played in 2023, like he was in the mix throughout the PGA Championship, hung around for 54 holes at the U.S. Open, he shot 58 at the Greenbrier, uh, shot a really low round, I believe in Chicago, to win there, and now he helps lead his team. Like He seems like he genuinely enjoys that battle and to have people who are, are, are instant friends or teammates or uh, comrades, right, where he didn't have that on the PGA Tour. I'm not sure that works for Brooks. I'm not sure his hard-ass, hard-nosed style necessarily works. I am curious to see, though, uh, who he attracts on his teams. He does have two holes to fill, uh, but his managerial style, I guess, uh, is not quite for everybody. No, and, and look, I don't know that anybody would expect Brooks to be a, a warm and fuzzy. Like, he's not going to be that kind of leader. And it, it just turned out, it is interesting, and to your point, I, I agree with you. Like, it's it's the transaction that I'm now, really, we're, we're taping this on Monday and now sort of is that open period for all of those players who, who want to sort of look at other teams. Uh, they have to match contracts like there is a transactional element to this that suddenly I'm more interested in than I ever have been over the course of the 18 months that they've been playing, quote unquote, team golf, because this is what like me as a sports fan wants to see. That being said, if you look back to last offseason and they had it was a very sort of abbreviated season. But Matt Wolf was the coveted prize like he was the free agent that everyone wanted. And then you get him and then it, it just unravels wildly. So now Taylor Gooch is sort of that coveted free agent. What's to say Taylor lands on Brooks's team and another personality conflict comes up? I, I do think this is part of it that is much more fascinating to me than the golf ever probably has been. All right, so I'm not sure what we're going to talk about on next week's podcast because this is a dead week on the PJ Tour. There is no PJ Tour event scheduled this week after the Zozo Championship, which was one by Kyle Morikawa. Surprisingly, Rex, in a runaway. Kyle Morikawa, 63 uh, in the final round, 
wins by six shots. I remember on our season opening podcast, taped on like January 2nd or 3rd, you predicted, your bold prediction, was that Kyle Morikawa would drop outside the top 25 in the world ranking. I remember being aghast at the suggestion. He was like 10th or 11th uh, at the time. You gave your reasons. He did not drop outside the top 25. He did get close, however. Just a couple of weeks ago, he was 22nd in the world. This now, after the win at the Zozo, moves him just outside the top 10 once again. What were your thoughts on Kyle Morikawa winning for the first time, surprisingly, uh, since that 2021 Open Championship? I knew you were going to bring that up. And I will point out that Kyle Morikawa was 20th in the world when he started last week. And I think he moved up to 12th. And we've got some runway between now and the end of the year. So I, I'd go easy on taking a victory lap on that one just yet. But it was an impressive performance. I, I will say that. Uh, I don't know. This one was always tough because I covered this event before. And it's a really cool event. Like the, the crowds in, in that, that area of Tokyo. I mean, they're just – it felt like their version of Scottsdale. Now, granted, it was Tiger and Hideki who were, who were kind of playing it out for the title last time I was there. So that was pretty cool. But Colin Morikawa is a crowd favorite. Clearly, you know, he has roots that go back to Japan. So I think it's a very, very cool situation. I will say this, though, like going forward, that was probably going to be, I think you'll agree with, that was going to be the best field of the fall. I mean, I don't think that's overstating it. No, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's pretty obvious. Like it's a, it's a limited field. There's no cuts. Uh, Zozo has been a, a, a good sponsor for the PG Tour. It's a slightly elevated purse, perhaps because of the distance that players have to travel. Like, yeah, like if you're, if the, if the, Top players are going to play one. It's going to be the Zozo. And I, I just will say it was kind of interesting to me how it sort of fell on the schedule. I don't think there was an elevated level of interest to match the elevated field for the fall. Like in my mind, I'm still looking forward to those last two events where guys are really starting the, the stories beyond the guy who's winning is, and we've talked about this, 125, 150, top 60, whatever the case may be, there's going to be so many different elements of that. I didn't like I checked in every night, but I don't think I tuned in to watch it, even though it was you're right. It was a commanding performance. And maybe that kind of factors into it. Why I didn't really pay attention to it. But but that one's tough. If it's going to be the, the best of FedEx Cup fall, and that's all one word, FedEx Cup fall. And you have it's Cup fall. You have two capital F's and a capital C. And it's all mushed together as one big amalgamation of a, of a word. If that's going to be the crown jewel of FedEx Cup fall, it seems to me it sort of fell a little bit flat. And again, I'm sort of looking forward to RSM and those last couple events to see how everything plays out. To be fair, I mean it, it has it has been a little bit sleepy, has it? I'm not sh- I'm not exactly sure what I was anticipating when it came to the FedEx Cup fall. Like the list of winners has been Rex- mm-hmm. pr- pretty good. I mean, like Sahith Thagala, fan favorite, gets his first win in Napa at the yeah. Sanderson Farms. You had Luke List uh, prevail, but but Ludwig Ober. Uh, lost in a playoff there. You had Tom Kim go back-to-back in Vegas, and now you have Kyle Morikawa, uh, a two-time major champion, who's winning the Zozo. It, it, except that's not what the fall was was supposed to be about. It's not supposed to be about the brand-name players kind of adding, adding to the victory totals Mm-mm. against diluted fields. It, it was supposed to be essentially an elongated Q school, perhaps a little bit less intense, perhaps a little bit more uh, for some players who are playing for their status, if not entry into the signature events. I'm not sure it's necessarily worked to this point. My interest has not been particularly high in the fall slate of tournaments 
uh, on the PGA Tour. I'm looking forward to a hard reset, to be honest with you. I, I, obviously, my look now is at the RSM. That's essentially now the Wyndham Championship where, where players are competing for the status. You and I will both be there. Uh, interest now, I think, circles around the Hero World Challenge. Special Will podcast Tiger, that week. Uh, that is. Uh, Davis Love the Third, uh, live from Southern Seoul. Did want you to give away the details, but I was just going to – it was called a tease in the business. I was just going to go with special podcast, but very good. You can go ahead and give away the details now. Who can say? Uh, we are uh, anticipating potentially Tiger Woods playing at the Hero World Challenge. Are you? Which is obviously be must-see TV. Todd Lewis is reporting. Would not surprise him. Uh, I mean, that's not, <laughs> I love T. Lou, love T. Lou to death. That's not exactly a putting it out there. That's, that's not, not, exactly, a road. not exactly reported uh, or a source, a source story. No, no, no. Not, I, like, it, I wouldn't be surprised. That's the softest of reporting you can possibly do. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Colin Morikawa dropped out of the top 25. Yeah, we have, we have slightly higher journalistic rigor over at NBCSports.com slash golf. Uh, so we do not yet have that on our website. It, but according to Todd Lewis, it would not be a total surprise if Tiger Woods did not play there. But then, like, let's start the thing. Let's, let's, see, how, let's see how this flow works. Let's see how this cadence works, to use the PGA Tour parlance, uh, with the signature events and then the full field events. I'm looking forward to a hard reset. But I do want to touch on, on Morikawa, Rex, because, like, it had been almost two and a half years since he won. And I was struck by his comments uh, in the press conference afterward how it like it sounded like he was in dire straits like on the verge of losing his pj tour card like he he talked about how he tried everything he'd spent more time on the reins in his entire life with caddy uh, jj jackovac he was looking at videos for hours with his swing coach rick sessinghouse he's such a perfectionist Kyle morikawa is and he set such high standards for himself uh winning two major championships by the age of 23 you almost want to get into their heads and just tell them to chill. Like I've, I've always thought this about Justin Thomas. Like he burns so bright and he burns so intensely that it almost becomes counterproductive. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney world? Like, Hey, we came to play. Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Cause we came to play at Walt Disney world resort. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet. Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Like they, you almost want it too much. And, and Kyle Morikawa came like surprisingly close to having a, a huge year. Like he was, he was 10th best on tour in strokes gained total. That was the best year statistically of his entire career. He's made improvements uh, with his much maligned putting stroke. He remains incredibly precise, both off the tee and into the greens. He lost the big lead at Kapalua, which kind of set the tone for the year. Uh, he nearly won again at Torrey. He had a high finish at Riviera. He lost in a playoff to Ricky at the Rocket Mortgage, and now he wins the best event of the fall 
at the Zojo Zozo Championship. Are you expecting a big time bounce back for Morikawa? Can he get back inside the top five, top ten in the world where he was just a couple years ago when he had the chance to get to world number one? I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think he, he certainly can. He's talented enough. Although I will point out, and this is what I keep going back to, and I think this is where we ended up with you kind of boxing me into that top 25 corner, was as good of a, as a long iron player as he is, and he is sublime. He's Tiger Woods-esque when, when that part of his game is on. You said the putting's improved. Actually, actually, statistically, he's putting worse this season than he did last year, even though he ranks higher compared to the rest of the field he's giving away more than he did last year and so I don't know if that's a part of his game that's really gotten that much better that I think you're right I mean he's clearly a tireless worker and I think there is something to what you say about Tiger the Tiger Woods effect that it had on this generation was you're always getting better right it's always one percent every day you're moving in the right direction whatever that takes and in Tiger Woods's case it was a lot of swing coaches it was a lot of different things with his body different things in the gym. And I think players of this generation sort of took that to heart. And sometimes just like Tiger Woods did, they go over the top. And I think you're right in the case of Morikawa, certainly probably in the case of Justin Thomas, that you can probably want something a little bit too much. And that sometimes kind of taking a step back and look at things in different ways, probably a really good idea. No, I, I think he definitely can get into that back into that top 10 perennial sort of winner getting back into the winner's circle, maybe even winning another major championship. But putting is still an issue. It hasn't gone away. And, like, I, at this point, I mean, he's been beset with this his entire career. He's always been. Is what it is? Is that what you're saying? Uh, kind of. Like, he's always been a sublime ball striker, always been a preeminent ball striker. The fact of the matter is he's never been better than an average putter. Now, on the weeks where he is great on the greens, he didn't have shot link statistics at the Zozo Championship, but he said post – uh, post round, this was the best uh, putting performance that he's had uh, in months. You look at the major championships that he's won both times. He ranked first in the field in putting. Like we have a large enough sample size because this is Kyle Morikawa's fourth year on the PJ Tour. Like when he puts well, more than likely than not, if he doesn't win, uh, he's certainly going to be right a significant factor uh, on Sunday. It's all about turning what is uh, what is a weakness, basically just just make it neutral, just. Just don't lose it on the greens. That's the point that we've gotten with Kyle Morikawa, just like we got before with Victor Hovland and some of his well, short game woes. And and I don't buy into it is what it is. And and maybe maybe it is. I mean, maybe five years from now, you know, you can wag your finger at me on this one because the idea that it is what it is. Uh, Lucas Glover would like a word to put it simply. Like here is a guy who we would. But do you all... think do you, do you think Lucas Glover's putting has staying power? I, I mean, anyone can find oh, anyone can find a fix for two or three uh, months. I don't Any, know. We'll find out. Do that. It will be interesting to find out because there's a level of confidence now with Lucas that hadn't been there really since he came out on tour. It hadn't been there since he won the U.S. Open at Wingfoot, and it, it did kind of come out of nowhere. Now it started to build late in the year, late in the summer, and then obviously what he did through the fall. But this is that I'm using that as an example because he is such an extreme example. It's not as though he was middle of the pack. I can argue that. Colin Morikawa, by and large, is middle of the pack. What comes to putting? Uh, Lucas was at the very, very bottom of the pack. I mean, anytime you're you're covering your eyes, like it's a car crash when he's got a three or four footer, like that that does not bode well for a PGA Tour player. And that simply wasn't there towards the end of the season. This is the one percent thing as it applies to Colin Morikawa. You're right. Instead of 
giving away 0.1 strokes to the field putting. If you can find a way to only give away 0.05 strokes to the field, that's a world of difference. It, like Kyle Morikawa's putting issues have not been for a lack of effort. Like he's tried everything. He's talked repeatedly about these mini breakthroughs, whether he tries the claw, whether he tries the saw, whether he tries, goes back to conventional, whether he, he works for two and a half hours on the putting green as he did at the Zozo on Wednesday, found something, won't share it with the press, uh, whatever the case may be. Like they can pet, they can putt well in spurts. The difference between the Roms and the Rory's Sky's not a great example because he's struggled with his putty right now, but the Xanders in the, in the, in the can't lays like those guys are consistently good or above average on the greens. It's not just putting well in spurts. And that's why they win. If he can somehow calm more accounting, if he can somehow get to that point and not just have this Lucas Glover blip of two or three months of great putting, uh, I'm, I'll be curious to see. It. I'll be curious to see what he can unlock Rick, I'm not sure that you can actually see this. I see it. But I am wearing yeah, yeah, I a Georgia it. shirt this week. It is Georgia, Florida. How's that tied into your uh, I do have tickets. Brock Bowers uh offered I offered to give him my left leg. Uh he, he graciously uh turned it down. I'm 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 a little bit nervous. I'm a little bit nervous. Uh Georgia Georgia football has not lost in Lily Labner's lifetime. Like that's how long it has been since Georgia has lost a game. This has been an incredibly blessed period uh, to be a bulldog, but I'm nervous. It's this for, for as much as Georgia's schedule was maligned at the beginning of the year, it's now looking like a murderer's row between Florida, Tennessee's on the road, Ole Miss at home. Uh, Missouri looks better than I think anyone anticipated. And then assuming they can get through there either unscathed or just one loss and still win the East uh, Alabama, more likely than not. Uh, is waiting in the SEC championship game. A loss is coming. I don't know when it's coming, uh, but I sure hope it's not on Saturday against Georgia's most bitter rival. Rex, what was on the grill this weekend? What will be on the grill? Because I know for a fact you'll be watching the Georgia-Florida game, the world's largest cocktail party. Do you think anybody cares about your angst when it comes to your University of Georgia Bulldogs? Not even a little. Not even a little, but this, is, little. but this is but this is our podcast. I dominate the discussion on this podcast. This is you my time to dominate this discussion. Uh, I, I won't bore you with details from the UCF game last weekend. It was just Gus Malzahn being mu- maximum Gus Malzahn at the very end, but I'll still take it. They were 17 and a half point dogs. You know what? You know what the truth is, Lav? No. Say it with me. Good teams win. Great teams cover. Don't know. Is that a gambling reference? Yeah, uh, if it is. You would not have gotten that. Uh, you and I traded some fun picks on Sunday on, on the Snappy Chat. You look like did uh, just a magical rack of ribs. It looked. It actually looked. My mouth started watering when you sent me that picture. That looked good. This was this was a big weekend, Rex. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. This was like the first full weekend I've had at home with no obligations, no one visiting uh, in a long time. I used four grills Oof. in two days. It began with a Blackstone breakfast. Uh, I made those pellet smoker wings that we talked about on last week's podcast where you'd go from zero to 400. Uh, I did grilled clams on the PK, which were phenomenal, Uh, steamed with a little bit of beer. I did like a Waffle House style grilled cheese and bacon, uh, which was delicious for lunch yesterday. And then, yes, as you mentioned, fired up the workhorse 1969. Shout out Chris Gentry for delivering that from Gentry's Barbecue uh, in Orlando. Go check him out if you're – in need but smoked for like three hours uh smoked it for about two hours at 250 uh until the rub was set 
uh, wrapped them in foil to get them tender, uh, pulled them off after about 45 minutes uh, when they were hitting about 206. Do you do just like apple nothing. cider vinegar or nothing? Yeah, oh, I, I spray them. I spray them just to keep them moist, and then throw them down. But I don't. I don't put butter in there. I don't put honey in there. I don't put brown sugar in there. Used to do that a couple years ago. They're just so sweet and sugary. Like it feels like you're eating candy. Um, and like I could easily take down an entire rack of ribs myself as long as they're as they're pretty bare bones. Uh, but the flavor was on point. The workhorse Rex. I, I was scared. I was scared getting an offset. I watched a lot of YouTube videos. Uh, I read a lot of online forums where people really scare you into thinking like it's so hard to manage a fire uh, and all these horror stories about getting that bitter, acrid taste all over your meat. If like you certainly have to pay attention, right? Like you you have to throw on, in, in my case, you have to throw on two splits every 30 to 45 minutes. Once the temp drops down to 225, that immediately spikes it back up to 260 and you just kind of hover there. But like I have not had any situations where it gets out of control, where it spikes to 350. I haven't had a situation where it gets down to 175 and the, and the, the coal bed uh, gets smothered out. I've had a great learning experience. I'm not sure that if that's, if that's because I'm, I'm well prepared and well researched uh, having watched many YouTube videos. I'm not sure if it's the, the, uh, the thickness of the steel being three eighth inches instead of the, the thin metal that you get at the big box stores. Uh, but I've been incredibly pleased. Uh, and if you want, you could swing over uh, on your way to the RSM. Uh, I'd love to host you for a little barbecue if you want. Uh, well, we're going up on, on Monday. We have to we're doing early. Yes, Monday morning. Early Monday. So yep. with Davis Love, since you let the cat out of the bag. So it would be kind of hard for me to do that. But I'm sure we can figure something out. I think it probably does have a lot to do with the quality of your offset. Like it clearly that metal makes a difference. Cause I used to struggle with the offset I had, it was an Oklahoma Joe. And so it was thinner metal and I, it was hard maintaining that temperature. I figured it out after a while and it wasn't that it would get too hot. I actually would wrestle sometimes getting it up to that two fifty mark, whatever the case may be. And so it took a little bit of work, but I think once you get the hang of it, it's, I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's enjoyable. I mean, I'm on the back porch anyway. That's the whole point of it. I mean, I never, ever cook inside. This is not an exaggeration when I can say on our, in our, on our cooktop inside, I've cooked maybe three or four times. And it's mostly just like boil water for spaghetti for the kids. Like I cook everything outdoors. You make the mess outside. You stink it up outside. You're getting fresh air. Like it's just, it's just how I prefer to do things. And when it comes to the smokers, I, I tend to have a life philosophy. And especially when it comes to smokers, like cry ones, buy ones. Was it expensive? Yes, but I'm able to get more. I feel like you're talking uh, to your wife now. You're not talking to the audience. You're not talking to me. It seems I'm, like that message, that message is for Amy. Let's be honest who that message is for. But it's like you get, you, you, you get what you pay for. Like if, if, you, if you get a high-quality product, you should expect high-quality products in return, right? Like if, 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 you get, if you get a $300 smoker from Home Depot and the thing is a, is a rust bucket – and it's got thin metal, and you got massive tum- temperature fluctuations. Like you can't, you can't expect to produce good barbecue. Can you? Uh, sure, if you make some compensations. But I'm trying to take out all of the variables for what is a a, a hobby, a pretty intense hobby. Uh, I, I must admit, like this is kind of this is kind of how I roll. You're coming off as a snob right now, so I'm going to go ahead and cut you off. I will say this to your point. I do need to set up some sort of system where I can cook everything outside 
because I did chili last night. I did smoked chili, like a Texas style. There's no beans in it. Um, but part of that process is sort of browning up the, the peppers before you actually put them in with, the, it was like a beef stock you put them in with and you kind of cook that down you render that down until you, you finally turn, put that in, make it into like a, almost like a puree. Anyway, you cannot do that inside the house. Oh, it was uninhabitable for a <laughs> solid hour because even my, like Trevor, my middle son walked in like, what, like, have we been poisoned by someone? Like, what is that smell inside this house? Uh, and I will say this, it turned out I, I enjoyed it. My sons enjoyed it. Bunkmate hated every bite of it because it was so spicy. And I will say that I didn't even use the peppers that it recommended because it even says in the recipe that you, you, like this pepper is really, really hot. So you may not want to use that one. I didn't even use that. So please, someone out there, let me know exactly. Like, give me a better recipe that I can dial back the heat because I enjoyed it. I really did. But Bunkmate was not a fan. God, hot coming in, hot coming out. Why don't you use beans uh, in your chili. First of all, it's way too hot still in Florida to be no, making it wasn't. chili. I need, I, I, need to, I need to have it under 70 mm. uh, if I'm going to even think about it. Uh, to be honest, like I use it's a, I believe it's a meat church packet. It's like a Texas chili mix. There's ways to, to get around it to not absolutely blow your head off. But I like, like I'll just I'll, I'll brown the meat. Uh, I'll throw it in a uh, Dutch oven. Uh, I'll smoke it with the lid off. Uh, with some uh, tomatoes, onions, garlic. I do like beans in my chili. I know that's sacrilegious in yeah, some parts uh, of the country, but I love my I love my chili with beans. Smoke it for a couple hours, stir it up so you uh, make sure the the smoke gets infiltrated in there. But like, I don't actually use real peppers in the chili. I'm just using I'm just using some sort of powder, which I think is where you you might be airing here. No, no. The recipe called for three different types of, of real peppers. Now, they were dried in one of the types. Well, I used the type from my garden. So I have like a jalapeno in my garden. That's really, really hot. Like I, I've had to figure out a way to use them because you know, I've got tons of them. So I have to figure out the way to use them. But by and large, if you take the – if you take the um, – sorry, getting a call from one of our producers right now. If you take um, – the seeds out and kind of you know wash them up right they're fine but this time around like I, I think you're right it's probably a combination of those peppers and then it called for a lot of different spices and probably i need to figure out exactly which one of those spices i, I can dial back get outside and cook folks the weather is beautiful except of course if you live in the northeast or you're our friend tom over in the uk tom uh, we're thinking about you in your very very lonely weber all right that's gonna do it for this edition Golf Channel Podcast with Rex and Lav. We'll be back for another episode next week where we break down forensic detail, Georgia's presumed victory over Florida. Any details of my tailgating debauchery, Rex's weekend with his grills, and whatever else pops up in the world of golf. The fact that the producer just called us on a day in which there is no shows that certainly suggests that something could be coming down the pike. All right. Talk to you guys next week. Make sure you go to uh, NBCSports.com slash golf for all the latest news and notes from World of Golf. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. 
We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. You already know you're going to eat some of those McDonald's golden fries on the drive home. So, you may as well add an extra order just for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 